You know, one of the great things about my job is that I get to talk about Jesus a lot. And I just love talking about him. Uh, I know you do too, but I get a chance to tell the story of Jesus and, and to recount what happened in his uh, earthly ministry. I, I love telling stories about how Jesus stopped the crowd to pay attention to somebody. You know, that, that's what happened with Zacchaeus. There's a whole crowd around him. He stopped and said, Zacchaeus, I'm focused on you right now. You, 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 you come on down. You, you know, that, that's what happened when he was going through Jericho and blind Bartimaeus was crying out. And Jesus stopped the whole crowd. They didn't want to stop. They were telling Bartimaeus to be quiet. He said, no, 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 no. We're going to deal with Bartimaeus. And he gave him his whole attention, his entire attention. I love the way he stopped a crowd on the way to the home of Jairus, the, 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 the official, the man of power, and a woman reached out, touched him for healing, and he stopped the crowd until he found her. I love to talk about the way Jesus stopped a crowd so he could pay attention to one person because that's what he did for me. I love the way Jesus would walk along the roadsides and he'd say, hey, guys, wait, wait, guys, guys, look. You see that farmer over there? I want you to know, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out to sow his seed, and then he began to teach the disciples with an everyday kind of example. The parables of Jesus are wonderful to talk about because I can understand at least enough of them to get something out of them. And so I love talking about what Jesus taught. I love talking about the way Jesus would touch people nobody else would touch and he would heal them, that he reached out to lepers. I, I love talking about that because that's what Jesus has done for me. And I love to talk about the cross of Jesus. Talk about that day when he took my sins on himself and he bore the weight and the condemnation that I deserved and he went to the cross and he died in my place. I love to tell that story because it's what saved me. And I love to tell the end of that story because it talks about an empty tomb, a stone that was rolled away, a Jesus who was risen, and they saw him. And I love to tell that story because the power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised me out of sin and will one day raise me from the grave as well. I love to talk about Jesus. But, you know, we usually stop right there. Maybe we talk about he ascended into heaven. But let me tell you something else about Jesus. Right now, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is seated in the glory and the majesty of heaven. And the story isn't complete until you know that Jesus ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he is there until every enemy of the gospel is put under his feet and made his footstool. That's our Jesus in the glory of heaven. This, this concept, this notion of the, that Jesus is seated in heaven is so important that it actually begins in the Old Testament. Back in the book of Psalms, it's Psalm 110, the first verse, and, and, and David writing this psalm, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the right hand was the place of honor. It was the place of authority. And to say, sit at my right hand was to say, sit where I can honor you. Sit where others know that you are, are, are the preeminent one in my court. Sit at my right hand. And then he said, until your enemies are your footstool. You see, back in the ancient, ancient Near East, uh, when you defeated an army or a kingdom, the, the generals or the, the 
king of the opposing army being defeated, they would come and they would have to bow down in front of you. And as a symbol of their defeat and your victory, the king would put his foot on the neck of those who had opposed him. That's what it means to say they will be your footstool. It means they will be absolutely defeated never to rise again. And so back there, um, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and tell your enemies, I make your enemies, your footstool. See, now, the, the Jews knew that David wrote this psalm, and so David couldn't say, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, and then refer to himself as his own Lord. And so they figured this out, and in the days of Jesus, everybody knew this was a prophecy of the Messiah. This is what God would do for the Messiah. He would seat him in a place of honor and of authority and adoration, and then he would submit all else unto the Messiah. So everybody knew this was a messianic prophecy in the book of Psalms. Now, when Jesus was on earth and he was talking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees liked to argue Bible with him, imagine that. And as they were arguing back and forth, one of the times Jesus said to them, he said, look, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, but the Messiah is the son of David. How can Messiah be the Lord of the one of whom he is the son? And the Pharisees looked at one another and they went, eh, let's change the subject. Let's talk about something else. But Jesus was claiming that role of the Messiah for himself even then. When Jesus appeared before uh, the, the religious leaders between, in, in front of the Sanhedrin and they were questioning him and, and challenging him and bringing all kinds of witnesses who were, who were distorting his words, you know, oh, he said he would destroy the temple and all those kinds of things. And, and Jesus um, was, was uh, there under trial. And finally, the high priest got so frustrated with all, he said, Jesus, you tell us, plain out, right here, right now, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, said, You said it, bub. Well, it was in Greek. You said it, bubos. Uh, but, but uh, he, you know, he said, you, know, you have said so. And that was, a, that was a, a way of saying, you said it. What you said is true. You said I'm the Christ. You said I'm the Son of God. That's exactly right. You said it. And so Jesus asserted that he is Messiah, Son of God, right at that moment. But immediately after that, he said, not only have you said it, but from now on, you will see the Son of Man, which is a title for the Messiah. It comes from the book of Daniel, but uh, enough of that later. But uh, uh, he said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Now, he, he said power because that is a, um, uh, a, a way that the Jews honored God by not saying the word God. They would say Lord or they would say heaven. That's why kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are the same thing. And so he said, you know, the, the, the kingdom, uh, he said, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, the very power of God. And then he said, coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus said, I am Messiah, right? I am Son of God, right? I will be seated in fulfillment of the prophecy at the right hand of God, and I will come back from that seat, from that throne in heaven. Now, the Bible says at that point, 
all the, the religious leaders began to tear their clothes, which was a way to say, like, we're really upset here. And they said, this is blasphemy. We've got to take care of this guy. And they started working double hard in order to get him crucified, taking him to the Romans so that they would do the deed. And so um, uh, Jesus claimed that position of being seated at the right hand of God, and that's one of the things that ticked off the religious leaders, that he would claim to be seated at the right hand of God. Of God, well, Peter, when he was preaching to the uh, uh, to the people on the day of Pentecost, this is in Acts chapter two, as he was talking about Jesus. You remember the the outline of his sermon? You know it by now, right, folks? It is God sent him, you killed him, but God raised him. I need to add something to that. But God raised him and seated him at His right hand. That's who Jesus is. He is seated at the right hand of God. And by the way, the last line is therefore repent. And, and, um, and put your faith in Christ. And so as Peter was teaching, he was also pulling out that imagery of the Messiah seated at the right hand of God. So it's very clear, it's, and it's woven throughout every layer of the New Testament. And so from the Old Testament into the life of Jesus, throughout the New Testament, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now what does that mean? I mean what, is that just interesting theology, interesting phrase, a little bit of poetry? You know, what exactly is going on here? And that's what I want for us to look at for the next few minutes. If you will, I'm turning to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, eventually I'll get to verse 11, but you know how it is. Uh, in this spot, Hebrews uh, is, is, is talking about the ministry of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the fact that the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, that these things were just a preview of the reality of Christ. That the temple sacrifices didn't have any real uh, permanent uh, kind of effectiveness, but rather they were pointing to the way that God would provide a way of forgiveness by the shedding of blood, and that that forgiveness would be appropriated by the people through their faith and trust in the promise of God to do so. And so he's talked about the, the sacrifices of the temple and the sacrifice of Christ that he made on the cross, and then uh, that's sort of a running start to verse 11. So this is Hebrews 10, 11. It says, every priest stands, by the way, stop and underline that word, stands. Every priest, earthly priest, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You see, the priests of the Old Testament system never stopped offering the sacrifices. You went to temple one day, and you clocked in, and you offered the sacrifices. What a great privilege it was, and the blood poured out on the altar, and the people, uh, you know, sensing that forgiveness of sins, that's great. Had a good day today. You go home, you get some rest, you get up the next morning, you clock in, and you got to do the same thing all over again because those animal sacrifices cannot take away the sins of man. The animal sacrifices cannot take away the sins that we commit. They were simply a picture and a promise of how God forgives sacrifices, by uh, forgives sins by providing a sacrifice. And so the priests of the old system, every day they had to do this, daily, constantly, over and over again. And when they did so, they had to stand because it was never ending. They had to keep going and going and going and going. All right? 
So they had to stand daily offering sacrifices that can never take away sins. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Oh, it just, yeah, that's right, because it, it just keeps getting better and better. Because when Jesus died, he died for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for every sin that you and I have ever committed. And he did so for the glory of the Father that we might be brought in to the family of God. And so when Jesus died for our sin, our sins were put on him. He didn't have any sin. He didn't deserve to die. He died the death we deserved. Our sin was put on him. Our condemnation was given to him. He was condemned and he died in our place. And he died on the cross, but he died only once. And so in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what does it say next, folks? He sat down. Why? There's nothing left to do. The sacrifice is done. The salvation is won. The blood has cleansed us entirely and wholly and completely. There's nothing to add to this. Folks, why in the world do we keep going back to an old-fashioned way of thinking? You know, the, the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament people, um, they, they offered the sacrifice of bulls and goats. And then the next day they knew, I need another sacrifice. So they went back to bulls and goats. And the next day they knew, I need another sacrifice. And they went back to bulls and to goats. They kept sacrificing bulls and goats. Folks, why are you sacrificing bulls and goats when Jesus died for your sins? Why are you thinking that you will somehow earn the grace of God or earn acceptance before God? How do you, I, I, why do you think that, you, that some religion is going to give you this relationship with the Father? Why do you keep going to bulls and goats? When Jesus died once for all, the perfect sacrifice given just once, and then he sat down. That's what the session of Christ means. Among other things, it means that the sacrifice has been won and it is done. Jesus did not die to give us a chance at being saved. Jesus did not die just to open up a gate so we could run onto the field and try to compete and win our salvation. Jesus did not die so that we could sort of clear the decks and try to do better from then on and maintain our salvation. Jesus died to save us, start to finish, and the work is done. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the salvation is won and is complete. We need to finish this. He says, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, tying into Psalm 110. Waiting for that time. You know, the moment is coming when every opponent of God, every opponent of Christ, every power, every principality, as Paul said, he's been given a name that's above every name, every rule, every dominion, every authority, every king, every president, every congressperson, every Supreme Court judge, every overbearing boss you've ever had. Jesus has authority and a name above every name. And we're just waiting for that moment when from that throne in heaven, he returns and completes the purpose of creation and of all history. And that's what um, the author of Hebrews means here is he's waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering done for all time forever. 
You don't need to add anything to it. That's why it's so important. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. It means the work of salvation is done. And your and my salvation, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, is absolutely secure and assured. We don't have to add a thing to it to keep it, not a thing to it to gain it. We don't have to add and could not add a thing to the blood of Jesus. It is done and finished. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, so that's, that's, that's just one of the glorious things it means. Now, the other part of that, I want you to look uh, back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll just sort of get a running start into this because that's the way we do things. Um, but in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit of God intercedes for us. You ever say, I don't know what to pray for? That's only when you realize that the rest of the time you don't know what to pray for. You just think you do. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We don't know how what's happening in my life fits into what's going to happen and what has happened in the vastness of, you, of the universe throughout all history. We can't hold all that together. We couldn't understand that. God alone understands that. And so the, the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and translates them into a way that is according to the will of God. Folks, if I didn't believe that, I'd quit praying. Just to believe that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. So when I pray, I, I know if by the time it gets to God's throne, which is, you know, really quick, the Holy Spirit's good like that. But, you know, by the time my prayer gets to the, to the throne of the Father, it's been crafted into a form that is according to his will and that will glorify him. And that's what prayer is about. So the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us when we pray. You got that? Now, hold that in your mind as we flip the page and go now to Romans 8. And, well, let's just start at verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a good question. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies us. It's God who says, no, no, not guilty. This is, this is my child washed in the blood of the Lamb, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's no charge that adheres to, to a child of God like that. And so he says, you know, who's going to bring a charge against us? Obviously, God is the one who has already justified us. And then verse 34, this is the one we want. Who is to condemn us? Who is to say, you're a failure. You, you deserve death. God's going to kick you out of heaven. You know, those kinds of things. Who is to condemn us? Wait a minute. Jesus Christ is the one who died. Jesus Christ is the one who bore our condemnation for us. Jesus Christ is the one who suffered the penalty of our sin in our place. He made that sacrifice for us. And so as Jesus died on the cross for us, he took that condemnation for us. Who is there to condemn us? Nobody, because Jesus has already taken that condemnation away from us on the cross, right? Amen. Larry, we're going to have revival here in a minute. Unless you and I started, okay. <laughs> who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? I could almost add, more than that, who is at the right hand of God? 
But here's what that means. Who indeed is interceding for us? Paul says, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. When Jesus went into heaven and sat down, he didn't sit down on a lazy boy drinking unsweetened iced tea. (laughs) He can drink all the sweet tea he wants. But but he's just not sitting there on a lazy boy relaxing. He's busy, and he's busy for us. Jesus is making intercession for us. Now, look, you got the Holy Spirit praying for us. You got Jesus, the Son, praying for us. I don't know why you want to pray to anybody else. Those are pretty good pray people. um, The Bible talks about other things that Jesus does in heaven. We already see that the work of salvation, the the sacrifice is completed, absolutely completed. And now he's in heaven and he's making intercession for us. But in Revelation chapter 1, we find out that Jesus is walking in the midst of the candle stands that, that stand for the church. In other words, Jesus is paying attention to his church and he is guiding and filling his church. That's what Paul means in Ephesians when he says, and God gave him as head over the church and a lot of other stuff he says in there. But that's one of the things he means. And so what we know is that Jesus is still connected to his body, to the church. That's why we know he's here with us. He's in our midst. He's in our presence. You know, it's one of those great, great, um, um, wondrous thoughts that he is in heaven reigning on high and he's right here with us. The Bible says that. Also in in Revelation 5, it says that uh, uh, John saw the lamb standing in the midst of the throne, standing as if slain. In other words, John saw Jesus with the marks of the cross still on his hands and in his side. And he saw the lamb standing, though, because you kill a lamb, he's supposed to lie down, you know, just sit there, you know. But he saw Jesus standing as an affirmation of the resurrection and, and that uh, he, you know, Jesus wasn't resuscitated to die later. He was resurrected never to die again because he defeated death entirely. And so Jesus is in heaven in the midst of the throne standing as a slain and receiving the worship and the adoration of the angels and of all the saints. And one day we're going to get there and we're going to worship the Lamb standing in the midst of the throne. But you know, there's something else about that. I, I don't know where this is in the notes, but I'm going to throw it in here. You know, um, uh, when Stephen, you remember Stephen, uh, the, the first martyr, um, and we heard a lot about Stephen yesterday at, uh, uh, at, at Upward Basketball during the devotionals, and I heard, I heard a, like a really good talk on it uh, yesterday myself, so I'm going to steal some of that. <laughs> but, but what happens is uh, Stephen is brought in front of the Jewish leaders, He's brought in front of the religious leaders because he'd been preaching about Jesus, and there's some elements of that they really don't like, and they want him to stop. And so in reply, what Stephen does is he talks about the history of Israel. He says, well, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened, illustrating how constantly Israel was ignoring the prophet of God, the person that God would send to lead them. He gets up through Moses, and he pauses just to summarize things, and he says, you know, guys, what this means is you are a stiff-necked people. Which one of the prophets did you fail to murder? Now, this really didn't go over very well with them, and they got really upset with him, and they were really going after him at this point. And at that point, the Bible says that Stephen looked up and he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the Son, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. 
Most scholars will tell you Jesus was standing at that moment to welcome Stephen into heaven. Folks, someday Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to welcome you into heaven if you have faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the day is coming when you're going to go through those doors. You know, we like to talk about St. Peter and the pearly gates and all that. Forget that. Jesus is going to run to the gate and like the prodigal uh, son coming home, he's going, to, he's going to hug you and he's going to give you a robe and he's going to give you a ring and shoes and he's going to bring you in and he's going to bring you right up to a front row seat there with the, uh, never mind, but he's going to bring you up to a front row seat there to worship him for all eternity. That's what it means to say Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's worthy of worship and he's worthy of praise. That's why when we get to uh, Philippians chapter 2, and we're not going to go there at the moment. You've got it memorized anyway. If you don't, I'll, I'll, I'll fake it. But what, what uh, Paul writes there, he says, you know, look, Jesus was, was equal with God. He was, he was in the form of God. He, he was God. But he emptied himself, and he came to earth and became obedient. He became a servant. He was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And then Paul says this, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, lifted him up, and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Whether it's in heaven or on earth or under the earth, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the second half of Psalm 110. Every name, every authority, every rule, every dominion will be put under his feet, under his authority, and we will exalt and worship him for all eternity. That's what it means to say Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The sacrifice is finished. He intercedes for us and loves us personally. And we adore him and worship him as all creation will one day. Now, what do you do with that? Where do we go with that? Well, um, let's go to Colossians. I didn't mark it in my Bible, but let's have a race, okay? I win. (laughs) It's Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul writes this, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says, just focus on Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, we tell children, watch where you're going. The other half of that is you'll go where you watch. You know, if you just look at things, you'll you, you, you sort of be drawn to it anyway. So uh, he says, fix your gaze, fix your focus on Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on heavenly things, not earthly things. But see Jesus seated upon the throne that you might worship and adore him and thank him for your salvation and just live in the, in the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is. And so that's, that's the idea of the session of Jesus that he is seated at the right hand of God. And what I'd like you to do for the, every day this coming week, 10 times a day, all right? Every time you sit down, for example, let, let us say that you had this stool, okay? If you sit on the stool, I want you to stop and praise Jesus who's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And you don't have to worry 
You don't have to worry about your prayer and your praise getting there. I'll tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit is a lot like this microphone, okay? That's, that's the Holy Spirit. That prayer will get there by the power of the Holy Spirit. But seriously, what I'd like you to do is just every time you sit down, just praise God that Jesus the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father. Your salvation is won. Your life is secure in him, and you can worship and praise him today and for all eternity. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father in heaven, I do ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit and that uh, you would just work in such a powerful way that we would have our eyesight lifted off the things of the earth and, and truly be fixed on the things of heaven. Father, that we would be overwhelmed with what you have done for us in Christ, what you are doing for us now. But Father, that we would worship and glorify you because one day all the enemies of Christ will be put under his feet. Father, how we rejoice to know his loving, sovereign rule in our lives today. And so I ask your Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us ever onward. Lead us, Father, so that we are always coming to the throne. There where our Savior is seated. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.